Blog Talk Radio. Glamour, fearless, diabetes late night. March's Diabetes Late Night Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to our unique blend of diabetes empowerment featuring great music, expert advice, fun games, and prizes to encourage you to live your best diabetes life. I'm your host, Mr. Divabetic, and tonight we're talking about nighttime diabetes self-management with musical inspiration from Gladys Knight and the Pips. Our Divabetic inspiration, Gladys Knight, doesn't have diabetes, but the disease is close to her heart. Her mother, Elizabeth Knight, experienced many diabetes health-related complications, including diabetic retinopathy, before she died in 1997. Her brother, David, was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in the mid-80s and gave up performing with the band due to complications. And Gladys Knight's cousin, Edward Patton, who was one of the former PIPs, is also living with diabetes. Now, our five-time Grammy Award-winning inspiration is passionate for spreading a message of early detection and prevention. Gladys Knight says, do something about diabetes. No more, do more. Well, we want, tonight we want to help you accomplish just that by talking about sleep apnea, the dawning effect, midnight cravings, and probably the one topic that keeps most Americans awake at night, healthcare reform. My guests include Stacey Harris, the diabetic pastry chef, certified clinical sleep health educator Tamara Selman from Sleepyhead Central, Marianne Hodorowitz, the Charlie's Angels of Outreach, and Mama Rosemarie. Plus, I'll be giving away a fabulous Diabetes Divabetic Prize Pack, courtesy of Cabot Cheese, New Naturals, and Dr. Greenfields, in our Instant Winner Challenge at the end of the hour. Now take a minute and follow me on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and donate to Divabetic at divabetic.org. 
your tax-deductible contributions are greatly appreciated. The original members of the PIPs included Gladys Knight's brother, Merlin Bubba Knight, sister Brenda Knight, and cousins William and Eleanor Guest. Who knew that the PIPs, there were some females in the PIPs? They got their name, the Pips, from another cousin who went on to become their manager. Let's listen to a song by Gladys Knight and the Pips that appeared on their album entitled Visions from 1983, courtesy of Sony Music. listening to Diabetes Late Night. Thank you for being number one in our book and making our podcast so popular and part of your monthly routine. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick. If you haven't seen much of me lately on Facebook or Twitter, it's because we just completed the first rehearsal of this year's Diabetes Mystery Podcast, which is set in Coney Island during the Mermaid Parade. That show will make its debut in September, and I've been very busy working on all the rewrites. Later on 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 the show, I'll be speaking with the diabetic pastry chef who's contributed several wonderful recipes to many of our mystery podcasts in the past. Straight ahead, though, we're talking about sleep and diabetes. Have you ever noticed that sleep difficulties are more common in people who have diabetes than in people who don't. Joining me to explain the reasons why this happens is my first guest. She's a certified sleep health educator, curator of Sleepyhead Central, and a consultant to the American Sleep Apnea Association. Please help me welcome Tamara Selman. Hello, Tamara. Hi, Max. How are you doing? I'm good. I had a I had a good night's sleep last night. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, we've never to covered this topic. We've never covered this topic on our podcast. We've been podcasting for almost seven years now, um, and I'm wow. so fascinated by it. I was at the Pittsburgh Diabetes Expo several years ago when we really focused on it at a live event, but we've never done it on a podcast. So I'm thrilled to have you joining us. Tell us a little bit about your experience working in the industry of sleep. Oh, well, um, I went back to college a few years ago and became trained as a sleep technologist after I discovered I had some of my own sleep health issues. And I guess like Gladys Knight, you kind of, you know, know more by doing more. And I I went in that direction, and now I work as a sleep health educator. Um, I loved working in the lab but did not love the overnight working hours, and so now I'm working during the day uh, writing about sleep health by original backgrounds in journalism. So it was kind of a perfect uh, fit for me to be able to take what I learned in the lab and sending it out into the media where people can learn. Now, I would assume that you would have had a lot of patients with diabetes coming to the lab. So I'm curious to know what your experience is with that and and what were some of the common causes uh, or some of the common problems among people with diabetes regarding sleep. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, Definitely you see people coming in with diabetes, and you can almost expect certain kinds of things to happen over the course of a sleep study. 
But then there are other people that come in who don't have that diagnosis, but by the end of the night, you know, while I'm not a medical doctor, I have a strong inkling that they have at least some kind of insulin resistance going on because of those things that happen in the middle of the night. So there are two scenarios, really, that I saw mostly. One of them was the pretty common uh, problem with waking up very frequently in the middle of the night because of low blood sugar or hypoglycemia. And uh, those patients who were known diabetics, you know, they were pretty well uh, trained in what to do. They knew what they were doing. So they would wake up feeling that dizziness, that hunger, the lightheadedness, maybe even feeling a little sweaty. They'd call me in. I'd help them uh, unattach from the wall where all their signals are being um, sort of trafficked to my computer. (laughs) And then they would go and use the restroom and so forth. And they would have a snack or drink some water or have some juice, and then they usually go back to sleep. And actually, most sleep labs contain, uh, or they offer those kinds of snacks so people who have diabetes can, you know, manage that uh, blood sugar problem in the middle of the night. But the less um, the less familiar scenario, but one that happened, you know, somewhat frequently, um, was that people would wake up feeling overheated with a real urgent need to use the restroom and feeling kind of sweaty, and they would... Um, call me in to use the restroom. And they probably, if they were diabetic, they would check their blood sugar and certainly it would be high. And they would, uh, of course, then manage their their blood sugar however they would do it at that time in their night and then they would end up going back to sleep. But there are quite a few patients that did not have that diagnosis and they would get up and use the restroom because, um, you know, probably they had, their kidneys had processed a lot of excess sugars and their body was just trying to excrete that in the middle of the night so they could get back to sleep. And they might not be able to settle in and get back to sleep again as soon as they went back to bed. So, um, yeah, so those are mostly the two scenarios that I I dealt with. Um, So usually the diabetics that were really taking good care of themselves always came with their supplies and their devices and everything they needed to manage the night. But definitely you would see them getting up to use the restroom fairly frequently, um, needing water, and sometimes feeling dizzy or lightheaded. And, yeah, we would just work with them with uh, whatever symptoms they might have. I'm just curious, though, like how does someone even become a part of a sleep study? Is it something that's referred by their doctor? Can I just call up, uh, uh, look it up on the in Google? I know people don't use the yellow pages anymore. I was going to say the yellow pages. But I'm, I'm curious, like how do people get referred to a sleep study to begin with? Well, that's a really good question because it's changing just slightly these days. Um, you definitely need a referral from a physician. Uh, usually it's a primary care, but neurologists might see patients and say, hey, I think you need a sleep study and then have you referred for one. But the new uh, area of practice, which is starting to really uh, refer more patients, is in the area of dentistry. You're finding that um, there are dentists trained in sleep medicine these days that can actually take a look at the shape of your bone structure in your jaw and your face. And with, uh, and also by looking on the interior of your mouth and looking at certain kinds of areas where there might be some sort of stress that they might be trained to identify. And then they might ask questions about blood pressure and about your sleep and decide that, you know, maybe you might have sleep apnea and maybe you need to go in and see a doctor. So, a dentist might actually refer you to a sleep doctor, too. I love that. That's really interesting. I know my listeners are probably enjoying this. You just mentioned sleep apnea. I've I've read about 
sleep apnea being connected to diabetes? Like, what is it, and how do you treat it? Oh, boy. Sleep apnea is, um, I would say it's a silent foe, except that it isn't always necessarily silent from a literal perspective. Right. Sleep apnea is a problem of breathing mechanics um, during sleep. So you lay down, you go to sleep, and as you're breathing, your upper airway collapses, and it's, in fact, blocked for at least 10 seconds at a time. That is what the definition of an apnea is. Um, Usually that obstruction is caused by maybe your tongue is, like, too big, (laughs) or you might have swollen tonsils or adenoids. Um, Frequently it's also because you carry too much weight around your neck area. Um, And when you lay down at night, if you retain a lot of fluid, that fluid gets redistributed across your body and you might find that you have more swelling in your face and that could also contribute to that as well. So this added pressure on these tissues in your airway can um, force your airway to collapse as it's relaxing while you're sleeping. And then you have these really pretty dangerous blockages and they're dangerous because you really do literally stop breathing because you're, the whole airway is blocked. So what happens is your uh, bloodstream doesn't get the oxygen it's used to receiving from those breaths that you're supposed to be taking. And then alarm sounds in your brain. And the brain says, uh-oh, you are not breathing. And so it actually sends out stress hormones, which are problematic for people who have diabetes, right? It kicks that mm-hmm. into, uh, for, to force you into waking up so that you can take that voluntary breath and correct your blood oxygen levels. So people with sleep apnea can have a milder case where they might have six or seven times in an hour when they stop breathing. But I've actually seen patients that have stopped breathing over 100, 120 times an hour. That's not very much sleep, uh, breathing <laughs> during a period of well, sleeping. Since, well, so you can imagine 100, 120 I'm- yeah, and I'm just curious, like, how is that diagnosed, or how would I even know that I had sleep apnea since I am oh. asleep, and I know that I'm waking up for seconds and going <laughs> right back to sleep? Yes. So you'll you'll know because if you have a bed partner, they will say, oh, my gosh, you were up all night gasping for air. That's a really good indicator that you should probably get it checked out. If you're a really loud snorer, uh, that snoring is considered uh, upper airway resistance, and that can actually be a a major indicator of um, sleep apnea. If you don't have a bed partner, you know, you may be stuck never knowing that you have it unless you get it checked out. And so if you wake up in the morning and you have a really raw, sore throat and your heart is pounding and your blood pressure is high and you are exhausted during the day, it's probably worth getting it checked out because those are all signs that uh, you have sleep apnea. And then one of the ways they treat it is, I understand, is with the CPAP machine, and you have to wear mm-hmm. a mask. And I know a lot of my listeners have a knee-jerk reaction to the idea that you would even try to fall asleep wearing a mask. So let alone oh, sleep yeah. with it on. <laughs> what is what is that? What is that? What is that machine number one? And um, how comfortable is it? Well, first of all, um, it's what it is is it's a machine that. Um, pressurizes air that comes through a tube through the mask that you wear. And that pressurized air actually just is like a pneumatic splint in which it opens up the back of your throat, the upper airway, so that it never collapses. And you get just enough pressure according to what your particular needs are, which is why you have another sleep study usually to determine 
how much pressure that might be. So if you have very severe sleep apnea, you might have a higher pressure. If you have pretty mild sleep apnea, you might, you know, it just depends. So everybody's a little different. Um, I've actually tried the, the masks, and there's the ones that rest right inside your nostrils. They're called pillows. And then there's the regular nasal mask that just goes over your nose. And then they have a full face uh, oral nasal mask, which covers your nose and your mouth. And I've tried them all. Um, we kind of have to. If we're going to be working with patients who have to wear these, we should know what it feels like to wear them. <laughs> and I found them not to be very, I didn't think they were very uncomfortable. And I have to say, I also had to wear one because I have had a sleep study myself. And often they will have you try one out when you go in for a sleep study just to find one that will fit you well, that you're comfortable with. And so I also had to try one then. And I didn't really find them particularly troublesome. Um, now, if you're claustrophobic, maybe you might, it might take a little getting used to. But these days the uh, masks are extremely lightweight. They're made out of materials that you would use on newborn babies. So they're very soft and uh, irritant-free. And they're really coming a long way with the different kinds of headgear that you can put on your head to keep it in place. So... I would say it's definitely worth a try. There's also oral appliances, which are dental devices that can adjust your bite in your mouth as you sleep to keep that airway open um, and other options. But those are the main two. All right. Well, we're all trying to get a, a good a good night rest. And I'm just curious, like, yeah. is there, um, since you, you've studied this so much, is there a good position, a better position we should be sleeping in to get a good night rest? And what kind of pillows are <laughs> ideal for getting a good night's rest? Oh, that's, those are good questions. Um, the best position is the one that you're most comfortable with, and everybody is a little different. I have seen every, every kind <laughs> in the sleep lab. Um, personally, though, I think because so many, so many sleep uh, problems um, – come from things like acid reflux or heart problems. And so I think it's generally recommended that you try to, if you're going to pick a side that the right side, or the left side, I'm sorry, the left side is the more comfortable um, and you're going to have fewer problems with uh, problems with reflux, say. Um, sleeping on your back is good, but you're probably going to have more problems with sleep apnea on your back than not. But it depends, again, on how comfortable you are. As for pillows, um, that's really more a matter of what will support your neck and keep you comfortable. I don't know that there are lots of pillows out there that claim to be great for sleeping, for breathing, but really it's, it's everybody's uh, physiology is so different. It really just depends on what you like the best. So it's kind of something you need to just try out. And I do have to say that if you have to use CPAP and you're a side sleeper, they do have pillows that have little cutouts in them so that you don't have any interference between the pillow and the mask to help make those more comfortable. I love it. And we're just finishing up. I, I saw on your website, we should tell everyone, sleepheadcentral.com. Uh, yeah, you were talking about head. what is yeah. sleep hygiene. Sleepyhead um, Central, I'm sorry. Yeah. What is um, okay. sleep hygiene? So what is sleep hygiene? Oh, it's all the different things that you actually have some control over when it comes to your sleep health and your opportunities to get good sleep. So it may, it's, it's a lot of different things, but it's the environment that you're sleeping in, making sure it's really dark and noise-proof as much as possible and at the right, current, uh, right temperature, which is usually should be cooler than warmer, 
Um, it's also making decisions about when to go to sleep and when to get up and being consistent with those decisions. It's really important to go to bed at the same time and get up at the same time as much as possible. It's also looking at medications that you might be taking to make sure they're not actually interfering with your sleep or uh, uh, cross uh, uh, interactions between the medications. Sometimes that can create insomnia or maybe make you really, really sleepy during the day. And then um, probably the, <laughs> the most important thing is to put the, the electronic handheld devices away at least an hour before bedtime, which we all struggle with. But there's a problem with that because these devices uh, cast an extremely bright blue-spectrum light, and that light actually shuts down the part of the brain that signals to the rest of the body to go to sleep. So when you shut that down, it's a hormone release that's that's delayed, and so it becomes much more difficult to fall asleep at night. So it's better to either <laughs> turn them off entirely, which can be really hard, or to at least wear blue-blocking uh, glasses or eyewear, which you can find all over the place for pretty inexpensively, or you can use um, light filters on your devices that kind of block that blue-spectrum light so that you don't shut off your melatonin production you know, unnecessarily. Tamara, it was fabulous having you on the show. There's so much great advice oh. on your website, sleepyheadcentral.com. Oh, you. are going to have to come back again. Uh, yes, I will. Soon. It was just <laughs> wonderful having you on the show. There's, yes, we're talking about circadian rhythms this month, so come in and, and drop me a visit and see what's up. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Now, listeners, did Thanks you know the Pips me. were retired in 1989? The good news is that Gladys Knight, our diva inspiration, continued on as a solo act, branching out into gospel and jazz. Here's a song that was a success on both the soul and pop charts. It spent a week at number one on the Hot Soul Singles Chart in 1974 and then peaked at number four on the Billboard Hot 100. Let's listen to I Gotta Use My Imagination, courtesy of Sony Music. Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. Coming up, I'll be announcing our instant winner. But first, my next guest is a certified diabetes educator, registered uh, dietitian. She's going to be discussing a topic that even Donald Trump considers to be very complicated. That's Paul Ryan's bill called the American Health Care Act. Please welcome back to the show, Marianne Hodorowitz. Hello, Marianne. Hi, Max. How are you? I'm can you great. hear me okay? You, know, you and I have had a very busy day because I uh, emailed you in the morning like, can we please talk about this topic again since it's, uh, it was on every news channel and, and making all the overnight, overnight headlines uh, last yeah. yesterday when it was announced. Uh, this is such an important topic to people with diabetes. Obviously, um, 
would be considered a pre-existing condition. I know you uh, were on our show at the end of December talking about it, and I I just want to come back to it now because the Republicans revealed their version of the health care bill to replace the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, dubbed Trump Care, in response to the previous administration. And um, there's a couple key provisions that are different between the two. Can you kind of explain uh, how you see the new American Health Care Act, I think that's what they're calling it? Well, it's interesting you should ask me about um, to kind of narrow my focus. That's really hard to do. Um, so let me just preface that, Max, by saying that the, um, the American Association of Diabetes Educators, the biggest advocacy group for people with um, diabetes and educating them on care, they actually asked me in the last couple of days to put together a summary of the main key provisions in the new health care law that affect people with diabetes. And I did it a couple of days ago, and then, of course, we know today uh, the Republicans unveiled it and had it all over the news. So um, I guess to, to narrow the focus of my answer for the sake of this show is that the really good news for people with diabetes is that insurers um, are mandated now they cannot, with this new law, so everything I'm going to say is based on the new law, they cannot deny you insurance based on pre-existing conditions. So that part of Obamacare is staying, um, and that's really good news. And they cannot charge you a higher premium because of a pre-existing condition. So they cannot reject you for insurance, and they cannot charge you a higher premium. But the big question is, what are the new premiums going to be What are the deductibles going to look like if an individual person like you or me who doesn't have employer-based insurance, um, what are those premiums and deductibles going to look like if I go out, because I'm self-employed, if I go out and buy insurance now under this new law as an individual person? Uh, We don't know that yet. And what I learned today is that um, this is brand new. I was listening to a news station all day today. And that's all they were talking about. I won't name the station. But they said um, this new health care law is going to be rolled out in three phases. I didn't know that. It's, and so this is phase one. There's still phase two and phase three. So there's a lot of things going on in phase one. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to address them. I just don't even know where to start. <laughs> Well, I want to go back to the pre-existing conditions for a minute because as I understood it, also doing research today, it's about continuous coverage, meaning that under the new American Health Care Act, you're right, you can't be dropped for a pre-existing condition. However, if you you go through 63 days of uh, continuously of without coverage, if you can't make a payment, then you'll be penalized up to 30% to get back on the plan. So if someone loses a job in between and has to go off their coverage, it's going to be much harder to get back. It's going to be much more expensive to get back on it, according to my research. Right. No, that is true, Max. And um, I have printed out in front of me here, for the, for the sake of your show, um, some of these key contingencies so I can, I can speak to them with some level of intelligence. And you're, you're absolutely right about that 30% higher premium. But then that begs the question, what is that premium going to be? Um, right. You know, 30% of what? And so um, for the listeners on your show, um, 
I, I can tell you for my sake, and I help a lot of organizations and, and people with this, I'm not hitting the panic button at all here because we just don't know what the premiums and deductibles are going to look like. But for, for the sake of the listeners, I think what's really important here is that these tax credits that this new law is going to give us. Do you, do you want to speak to that first, Max, about the, the year-end tax credits and how they're different levels depending on your age and your income? Sure. I know that the tax credits apply to someone who's an independent um, is an independent employee, you know, they're they're self-employed. They're not being their their health coverage is not by their uh, their job. And I know that these brackets, uh, I believe it's like seventy thousand and one hundred forty thousand, seventy-five thousand for the individual. You have to make less than seventy-five thousand a year, and for the family, you have to make one hundred and forty thousand or less to qualify for these tax credits they're talking about, or health savings, I guess. They yeah, would call the, the, the tax credits, this is for anyone who buys insurance on the individual market. So you're not, you don't get your insurance through an employer, and you don't get it through Medicare, okay, because there's buckets of insurance. There's Medicare, one bucket, Medicaid for low income, and then there's the private insurers where people who are not on Medicare and they don't qualify for Medicaid and they don't, they're not with an employer, they have to go into what's called the individual market and buy an individual health plan. And so those are the people who were talking about the tax credits that would come at the end of the year when they do their tax return. So my, um, what I have printed here is that people under 30 are eligible for a credit of $2,000 a year if, if they buy, again, health insurance, a health insurance individual health plan, and that people over 60 are eligible for $4,000 in a year-end tax credit. Um, and that credit grows with the size of the family. Um, so it's tied also to the size of the family, not just age. But it's for the family credit, it's capped at, or there's a limit of 14000 at year-end credit. But then you're right. These credits are also tied to income level. So they're tied to age, family size, and income level. And like you mentioned, they gave an example here in my document that um, if you're a 29-year-old and you've, you've reached an income of $95,000, um, your credit, you don't have a credit at that point because you're making too much money. If you're a 60 or more years old, and you're making 115,000 as an individual, you don't get a credit. So um, I guess they're saying that if if you make a significant amount of money um, tied to income, those tax you buy again. This is all based on buying an individual health plan as an individual person, not Medicare, not Medicaid, and not with employer-sponsored health plans. Well, now let's, you brought up Medicaid. Let's talk about that because this also is a huge difference between uh, Obamacare and what's being called Trump Care. Is the cuts that may potentially be happening to Medicaid. What did you find out about that? A couple of things I found out, um, and this is all, again, coming from legitimate sources um, on, the, on the Internet, from legitimate news sites, so I want your listeners to trust this. So far what we have today, but who knows, it could change tomorrow. Um, right now with Obamacare, 35 states under Obamacare opted to take federal funds 
under Obamacare to expand the state Medicaid program. And 35 states did that. And in that expansion, so I have to talk about this first, that expansion in most of those states then allowed more low-income people to qualify for Medicaid, a lot more low-income people. I can tell you here in Illinois where I'm at, um, at one point my son, who was in his early 20s, he was at the poverty line with income. Okay, so income-wise he would have qualified for Illinois Medicaid, but at that time you also had to have a mental um, disability to qualify for Illinois Medicaid. And he didn't have a mental disability. So he, even though he had a poverty-level income, he didn't qualify. Under the Obamacare, that mental disability went away, and just you just had to meet the poverty line income. So we qualified immediately. And so for three years, he had Illinois Medicaid. So that's all good. That's why there's a lot of extra people, millions of extra low-income people now getting insurance through Medicaid. Now to this new law, uh, Trump Care, um, they're going to stop giving federal funds to the states to expand and continue to grow Medicaid programs. They're going to cut off those funds. So for the states who never took the money at the beginning, they're not going to get it anymore. For the states who did take the money and expand, they're going to stop getting federal funds to keep funding the new programs that came with the expansion. So this is kind of the downside, but again, this is only phase one. There's three phases to this, so I don't want anybody to hit a panic button. You know, the the naysayers are saying that a lot of Medicaid low-income people will be without insurance now because of no more federal funds to the Medicaid programs, um, but those are naysayers, and those are opinions. And, you know, you really have to take with a grain of salt uh, negative people who look at life half empty or the cup half empty, you know, they take lemons and they still have lemons instead of lemonade. So I think but the jury at the same is- time, I, I just have to say, I mean, I agree. I agree with what you're saying, but it seems like they came charging after this uh, Obamacare right from the beginning. You know, they've been talking, the Republicans have been talking about it for years, and a lot of people are so angry because, you know, here, they didn't have a plan, and now the president comes out and says it's very complicated after, you know, 40 days in office when it's been, you know, they've caused this kind of stress within people that I do think there's a certain right for people to be naysayers because they don't know what phase two and phase three are uh, are going to be. And I, I do think, you know, the burden is now on the administration to make lemons into lemonade because of how this is all happened and, and the way in which they do it. Again, I mean, that's just my opinion as well, but I, do, I could sense from what I've read around and how I see people reacting, it's kind of like a lot of this goes back to um, the current administration and how they've been handling it. I do want to talk a little bit, though, more with you about uh, preventative care, because that also seemed to be something that was coming up a lot in what could be changing very quickly. And perhaps probably uh, the biggest target for preventative care is the idea of defunding Planned Parenthood. I don't really want to get into discussion about pro-choice or pro-life. That's not really applicable to this podcast. However, millions of women uh, who don't have 
the income rely on Planned Parenthood for a lot of other preventative services, and it does concern me. I don't know what your research showed that some of this could be cut, and they and and I'm not just talking about um, uh, family uh, birth control and abortions. I'm talking about all the other screenings they do for these low-income women. Okay, well, I can address yeah, I have I can address that from what I've again the research I've done today and what I've heard from legitimate. Um, sources is that under the Obamacare plan, there were what's called, and I've spoken on this at podiums numerous times, um, 10 essential health benefits, that's what they're called, 10 essential health benefit categories um, that were mandated under Obamacare that insurances had to cover. Again, we're not, and and that includes um, Medicare, that bucket of Medicare and the bucket of Medicaid and the bucket of private insurance plans like Blue Cross, Aetna, Cigna. There was these 10 essential health benefit categories, which include maternity care, prescription drugs, um, diet-related, if you've got chronic diseases, all kinds of screenings for obesity, depression, uh, cholesterol disorders, um, tobacco uh, use, alcohol misuse, all, all kinds of things, okay? So I was holding my breath as a diabetes educator and a dietitian whether that mandate to cover those 10 essential health benefit categories was going to go away in the new law. According to today, no, it's not going away. The insurance companies are still mandated to cover those 10 categories of essential health benefits. And that, to your point, Max, we call those preventive services because they they help with the screenings and the interventions. It's screenings and interventions. It helps to identify a a life-threatening chronic disease through the screenings early on. And again, the insurance has to pay for it. The subscriber has no cost sharing. Um, And then if you do have a lot of these chronic diseases like diabetes, um, there's a lot of diet intervention, diet therapy, that has to be covered too. So um, that are, those are not going away according to what I heard today. Well, that's good news. That's Did really anything else news. jump out at you that you wanted to talk about on this topic? Um, yeah, um, there is. Um, the um, first of all, you know, what, about these these tax. The, the do you remember what the Obamacare? We had these different levels in the market exchanges called um, platinum, gold, silver, bronze. Do you remember that? And um, depending on the the metal level, like bronze is a less important metal than gold, um, those health plans that went down in metal, like bronze, you got less benefits, and then you you had to pay more out of pocket. Um, Those metal levels are going to go away. And so it's it's and, and you really when you're shopping for a healthcare plan, at least the metal levels let you compare the different levels, gold, platinum, silver, where platinum, if you had a medical intervention, ninety uh, percent of the cost, if you got the platinum plan, you paid a really high premium, but then ninety percent of the cost of the intervention was paid by the insurance company. And if you got the bronze plan, you got a really cheap premium but then you were on the hook for 80% of the cost of the intervention. So you can compare then under Obamacare 
you know, you could look at a table and compare what your premium is and then what your cost sharing is going to be for an intervention. Um, those metal levels are going to go away. And that, that, that how much the insurance will pay, you know, so you can compare one plan to another, I'm, I'm told that that's no longer going to be part of this deal. And that's, that's a little disconcerting. Do you know what I'm saying? That Absolutely. you won't be able to, the, the, the transparency to be able to compare, just like when you, here's the analogy, you go to the grocery store and you want to buy the best looking apples in the produce section, right? Well, they're all there. There's like 50 different varieties of apples and they're right there in front of you and you can compare all the varieties, the size, the color, the shape, and you can make an informed decision. It's going to be harder to do that now under this new law Um, because the insurance companies, I think, they're not going to be mandated to be completely transparent um, and compare their own plans one against another on the Internet so you can make this informed decision based on complete information. So, and, you know, again, I, I just means- have to ask, you know, sometimes I think people are making these decisions when they're in a health crisis or, you know, they're not in the, they're not, it's just not an everyday experience. They usually everyone begins to research health care plans when something has gone wrong. What I love about what's happening right now in America is we all are talking about health care all the time and we're all as a nation learning more about it every day and I think you know people are investing more time to figure this stuff out to get a better sense of how of what to do if if they're suddenly themselves or one of their loved ones is dealing with a health crisis it's kind of interesting mm-hmm. to see everyone's health IQ go up I mean that's to me one of the positive things that's come out of this whole the, these last couple months is where we all stand with our general knowledge about health care now and, and how it would affect us. I agree a thousand percent. If you're in this bucket of an individual person that's not Medicare, uh, not Medicaid right now, but you're going out and buying this individual plan, or you are in Medicaid and you're saying, oh, my God, my state took the federal funding and the federal funding is going to stop, what does that mean to my Medicaid plan? But the other, you asked about what else I, I wanted to speak to. Um, this new law is going to maintain um, the requirement that insurance companies, um, they, they still are banned from having lifetime or annual limits on their payouts. Um, in the old days, like if you had insurance max with Cigna, or I'm not picking on any insurance company, I'm just naming a private sure. insurance company. And so you had a plan, and God forbid you got some catastrophic disease or an accident, and they paid out $100,000. could be any plan. And they said, oh, you've reached your cap. That's all we pay out. You know, either annually or over your lifetime, you're done. You've reached your cap. The affordable Obamacare banned that. They said you, insurance companies cannot cap off what they're going to pay annually, for your care max or for your lifetime. That is going to be maintained in this new law. They can't cap those payouts. So that's really good news, don't you think? Absolutely. Well, I I, I also was thinking 
Marianne, you, you take this complicated subject and you break it down for our listeners in such a clear, concise way. I, I love having you on the show to take on this topic because I think it's of such value to our listeners. I, I just want to, to tell you that. <laughs> I oh, love thank how you, you break it down and make it really – I'm sure people are going to be hitting me up on Twitter and Facebook telling me this. So I could just tell you uh, that I just think you made, you, you made a lot of sense out of it for me. And today I was watching every channel like you and doing as much research as possible to try to figure out the difference. Well, and the other good piece here is that in the old days, um, your your monthly premium um, could, the, uh, could, the old days, this is pre-Obamacare, where your monthly premiums could be tied to your um, medical condition. So if you had diabetes or cancer, and I'm a two-time cancer survivor, and my husband has diabetes, and so in the old days, they could say, whoa, you've had cancer twice, Marianne, and your husband has diabetes, right. so there goes your premium. You're going to pay $3,000 a month, you know, because you're at this huge high-risk thing. Well, Obamacare banned that. They said, no, 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 you cannot tie premiums to a medical, an existing medical condition. And the new law is maintaining that ban. They cannot tie premiums to your health status. So you could be sicker than a dog with serious conditions, diabetes and cancer and lupus all combined, and you're not going to get a higher premium just based on that. So that's really good news. It is great news, and you're going to have to come back and share Phase 2 and Phase 3 with our listeners, Uh, Marianne. Thank you so much for being on the show You're welcome. You're welcome. All right, our diva inspiration, Gladys Knight, is a seven-time Grammy winner who has enjoyed number one hits in pop, R&B, and adult contemporary music. Here's one of her biggest hits from 1985 featuring Stevie Wonder, Elton John, and Dionne Warwick, which was released as a charity single raising over $3 million for AIDS research and prevention. It also went on to win Grammy Awards for Best Pop Performance for a Duo Group and Song of the Year. Let's listen to That's What Friends Are For, courtesy of Sony Music. Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. Keep on smiling, as Elton John was saying right there. Uh, Tonight, we're talking about nighttime diabetes self-management. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick. If you're struggling with late-night cravings, I have some good news. My next guest has created a collection of diabetes-friendly recipes for people who don't want to feel guilty about craving chocolate chip cookies, apple pie, or creme brulee. Please welcome to the show, for the very first time, the diabetic pastry chef, Stacy Harris. Hi, Stacy. Hi, thanks for having me. I am thrilled to welcome you to the show because we've been going back and forth for uh, over a year now, and we've been sharing your recipes on our website, divabag.org, and in our e-newsletters, and they're very popular on our blog, Stacey. And it's just, um, I just want to first of all thank you so much for being a part of our Diva brand of outreach. You're welcome. Now, 
I've done a lot of research on you, but my listeners don't know that much about you. I know uh, I want to hear a little bit about your story because I know you were training to be a pastry chef when you were first diagnosed with diabetes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, well, as you said, I was attending um, culinary school. I became ill and was uh, put in the hospital and diagnosed with diabetes. So I was really devastated because I thought, oh, well, there goes my new career. And I went home after my hospital stay, and I started working with my recipes in order to make them more diabetic-friendly. And I posted them on a forum on the Internet, and they became very popular. And then the Bear Corporation, um, the makers of Bear Aspirin, asked me to do a seminar for some of their patients. And then I was offered a book deal, and then one thing led to another. And how long ago was all of that? Oh, that was over 10 years ago. And and were you diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes when you were hospitalized? Type 2. Um, my family has a long history of diabetes. Um, all of my aunts and uncles, um, mainly on both sides of my family, had it. And um, um, many of my other relatives also. Okay, and so here you are. You have a. I know you've. I've read the interviews you were on. I think Diabetes Health Magazine, talking about having always having a sweet tooth. So, what was one of the first recipes you took on to try to recreate in a diabetes-friendly manner? Pound cake. And what did you do to make that more? Uh, what can you share with us on some of the secrets to how you made that a little bit more diabetes-friendly? Okay. Well, I came up with a formula. And the formula that I came up with, um, it takes flowers, uh, typically white flour, and then I go and I mix the flowers. So instead of using white, I might use a combination of white, oat, soy, um, or some other flour. And this is done to lower the carbs. Then I use a sugar substitute. My current sugar substitute is Waylo because it's all natural and I'm leaning more towards all natural now. Um, I also began to take milk and I would buy whole milk and I would dilute it with half water um, in order to lower the carbs. Now I might substitute almond milk instead of dairy milk. And I also took butter, and I mixed my butter with canola oil, and um, I came up with a, it looks like a margarine spread when it's done, and I substituted that for the butter in my recipes. So there were a number of different things I did. So it was change or mix my flours, reduce the sugar, or use a sugar substitute, dilute whole milk with half water, or use almond milk, and then um, use a healthier fat, such as canola oil mixed with butter. 
Okay, we knew you were going to be on the show tonight, so we asked a few divas to write in some questions to you. Um, one of them is from Beverly. She's from Phoenix, Arizona. She's been trying to use a lot of sugar substitutes, and she said that uh, she's been using Splenda, and nothing tastes the way it should with Splenda. Is, do you have a? Uh, can you recommend another sugar yeah. substitute for her, or is there, or do you have a tip on how to use Splenda to make her recipes have a little bit more zing? Yes, my uh, favorite is all natural, and it's called Waylo. And um, it tastes W A Y L O W H W H E Y L O W two words. Right. And I use uh, the Waylo D granular, and Waylo D stands for diabetics. So that's the one that um, I use in my baking. Uh, it's low glycemic, and it's made from a mixture of fructose and lactose. Okay. And Amanda from Dallas says she's in love with agave nectar. Uh, She hasn't used it yet, but she's wondering if you've ever used agave instead of regular sugar in any of your recipes, and is it a a proper substitute? No. Um, I use agave, but I typically use it in my drinks. Uh, it is liquid, and so it does substitute very well with the powdered sugar. So I don't recommend using agave in place of sugar. It just has different baking properties. Okay, and then um, Beverly from Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, excuse me, said, I heard about Stacy's two-ingredient muffins. Can she share what they are? Oh. <laughs> Two ingredients? Is that looked... really all that's in your muffins, Stacy? <laughs> yes. Um, I haven't uh, worked with those muffins in quite a while, but um, the muffins were basically where you took a um, cake mix and you would mix it with one other ingredient, such as you might take a... Um, sugar-free cake mix, and instead of eggs, uh, water, and oil, you would just um, put in a maybe a can of uh, diet soda or maybe some pumpkin puree, but it always begins with some sort of a sugar-free cake mix and one other ingredient, and they taste uh, pretty good. And then you put them in like a cup. You put them in muffin tins, right? You don't make a whole cake. You just kind of. Yeah. Is that why it works too? Because it's smaller, uh, bite size quantity. You know, uh, size. Uh, yes, I guess that that is why. All right. So I told you tonight that we were playing. Our diva inspiration is Gladys Knight and the Pips, and and asked you to share a recipe that would be inspired by our diva inspiration. I do love midnight chocolate, so do a lot of our guests. So tell us a little bit about the recipe you're going to share with us tonight. Okay, that recipe is my um, flourless chocolate cake. And um, it's really good because flour has a lot of carbs. So when you eliminate the flour... Um, you're eliminating those carbs. 
Do you so want me to give the recipe? Okay, sure. that would be okay. That would be just one second. I'm sorry, I didn't know you were going to ask for it. Well, you could just go over some of the basic things. I I have it here too, so I know you have a sugar-free or bittersweet okay. chocolate. You have a cup. Yeah, of, I have a half it. cup of butter. Mhm. Two whole eggs. Two whole eggs. Four, four separated, separated eggs. eggs. Uh, one cup of sugar, cup of sugar or the equivalent of a dry sugar substitute, which mm-hmm. would be Waylo, and then you mm-hmm. had a teaspoon of vanilla ex- extract. Is this kind of a beginner's yeah. recipe, or does someone have to be a little bit more experienced in the kitchen to pull this off? I'd say it's more of a beginner's recipe, but it tastes pretty sophisticated. Because then you go on to have to melt the chocolate in a double boiler, and then you have to combine the eggs and some of the sugar and other dry ingredients together with the vanilla, right? Mm-hmm. Mix it all. How am I doing? Beat the egg whites until foamy, and then you add your sugar or your uh, sugar substitute in. And, and when mm-hmm. once those egg whites uh, form soft peaks, uh, take us through the rest of that recipe from there. Okay. Um, let's see. All right, you're beating your egg whites uh, until they're foamy, and then you slowly add your sugar or sugar substitute. You beat until the whites form soft peaks that hold their shape, but they're not too stiff. Um, Then you're going to stir in approximately one quarter of the beaten egg whites into the chocolate mixture, and then you gently fold in the remaining whites. You pour the batter into a springform pan, and um, you smooth it, and you bake it at 350 degrees uh, until the top of the cake is pulled and cracked and the center is firm. And that will take approximately 35 to 40 minutes. Uh, You don't want to overbake it. So then you cool the cake on a wire rack, and you'll see that it begins to fall as it cools. At serving time, you're going to fill it with sweetened whipped cream or uh, maybe chocolate sauce with raspberries or whatever you want. And uh, it makes about 8 to 12 servings. And the total I, I mean, carbs I'm already starving for it now. I want to give it to the rest of my guests. Will you do me a favor, <laughs> Stacey? Uh-huh. Stick around because later on we're going to play some snooze or lose games with you with our diabetes educator when the Charlie's Angels of Outreach, Patricia Addy Gentle. And we'll also hear more about your new cookbook that's coming out this spring. So you stick around okay. for a little while and uh, we'll be right sure. back to play some games with you. Okay. And we'll dive into that cake, everybody. It sounds delicious. All right. Uh, Glassnay began performing gospel music at the age of four at Mount Moriah Baptist Church in Georgia. I wonder who else is from Georgia. Oh, yes, Patricia Addy Gentle. Here's another number one song by Glasnay in the Pips uh, from 1983, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's get up and move, everybody. You're listening to Saving the Overtime for Me. Out the window, the 
exercising or doing some strenuous activity that also decreased the blood sugar, and they will find themselves dropping too low. Another reason could be that they skipped a meal, they took insulin and didn't eat, or maybe they didn't eat enough. And then there are medications sometimes that will interact with the uh, insulin that they took or other medications that they're taking, and um, alcohol as well can interfere and cause low blood sugars. And so what should everyone have near their nightstand or near their bed if they don't have a nightstand to help them in case a hypoglycemic uh, experience happens at nighttime? They should always have a blood glucose monitor right there and available. Uh, It's best if there is time uh, to check the blood sugar and to assure that it is definitely low and not some symptom from something, you know, something that you presumed was a low blood sugar, and maybe it was not. So it's best to test, but if you are almost sure and you're feeling so shaky that you're about to pass out, then always have a 15-gram of carbohydrate uh, remedy next to the bed. It can be glucose tablets. It can be um, something that you can drink, um, you know, but any of those measurements that will give you 15 grams of carbohydrate, and we're talking about quick carbohydrates, not something that you're going to be uh, having to let dissolve or takes a while to get into the system, but something that you can chew rapidly and swallow or drink. Um, if, if a person is not conscious enough to drink, then there are those gels that are prepared that uh, someone else may have to administer. But if you're conscious and you have diabetes and you are aware enough to know that you need a treatment, then those glucose tablets and are, are some hard candy is ideal. Okay, and um, we have a question for you. Uh, Rita from Mobile, Alabama, said she wants to know what's going on. She has a nightmare because of her diabetes. She goes to bed, and she tests her blood sugar, and it's 120, and then she wakes up in the morning, and it's over 200. What is that, and why does that happen? Well, we do have uh, something that occurs in, in some people called the Dawn Phenomenon. And in the dawn phenomenon, it's when... Does that have to do with Tony Orlando? (laughs) No, it doesn't. It's actually the result of several natural changes in the body. They happen between usually the hours of 3 and 8 a.m., and it's when the body ramps up, just starts making excess hormones, and that's normal. we, We release cortisol and other hormones that interfere with insulin and the way that we use our insulin. And so sometimes in response to that, uh, the blood sugar becomes low, and we compensate by excreting more, uh, uh, releasing more sugar supplies from our liver to compensate for it. And so sometimes you will awaken and the blood sugar is extremely high or higher than what you would anticipate it being, knowing that you have not had meals during the night, and you went to bed with a blood sugar that was completely normal. All right. That's great advice. Thank you, Patricia. Guess what, Patricia? It's time for games. Are you excited? We're going to have uh, Tamara Stillman. uh, 
Selman come back, as well as uh, the diabetic pastry chef Stacy Harris. But first, I want to play a song that was written by Jim Witherly that was first recorded as a country song by Ray Price before Gladys Knight and the Pips recorded their own version. Let's listen to the best thing that ever happened to me, courtesy of Sony Music. Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedigan. If anyone ever wrote my life story, I think I'd have to include that little uh, experience with Gladys Knight and her bra at the Essence Festival backstage, right? <laughs> Let me know what you think about that. You can hit me up on Facebook or Twitter. Right now, it's time to play News or Lose. Welcome back to the show, the diabetic pastry chef, Stacy Harris. Hi, Stacy. Hi. And- Tamara Stellman from the Sleepyhead Central. Hello, uh, Tamara, you're back. And we've got Patricia Addy Gentle. Uh, Here's what's going to happen. I want to remind everyone that having diabetes doesn't necessarily mean uh, that your sleep will be impacted. It's more important of of what symptoms your diabetes. It's more a matter of what symptoms of diabetes you experience and how you manage them. We're going to have some fun, Stacy, asking you some questions, and then we'll get Tamara and uh, Patricia's answers to the questions, and uh, you'll have a chance to win a prize pack for one of our callers tonight. So the first question in your little snooze or lose, according to National Sleep Foundation, what percentage of American adults do not get enough sleep needed for good health, safety, and optimum performance? Is it A, 43%, B, 63%, or C, 83%? Stacey Harris. 43. 43%? Is that your your final answer, Stacey? Stacey? Uh, I don't know the way you said it. Maybe it's 63. <laughs> what did you think it was, Tamara? I I was thinking it was uh, the 63%, two-thirds about. Yay. And what do you want to say about it, Patricia? Uh, that's uh, correct, the 63%. Um, yeah. it's, it's noted that 63% of Americans, uh, adults, don't get enough sleep. And say so there are several causes of sleep problems, especially for people with type 2 diabetes, that include obstructive sleep apnea, they can be having pain or discomfort, restless leg syndrome, or there may be a need to go to the bathroom frequently. And then there are other problems also associated with type 2 that can interfere with sleep. All right. Question number two, true or false? People could take cat naps with their eyes open without even being aware of it. Stacey Harris, true or false? True. (laughs) 
Tamara, you must have seen this in the sleep studies uh, in the when in the sleep labs, didn't you? Did you see people sleeping with their eyes open? I actually have. Yeah, it's very strange, and it you know it makes I've I've heard rumors that people can sleep with their eyes open as long as it's really dark. I think it makes sense, but it's still weird. <laughs> All right, well, now, everybody, we're going to invite our final guest of the evening, Mama Rosemarie, to the show. Hello, Mama Rosemarie. Good evening. Nice to be here. Um, you always encourage me to dream big, so this question's for you. How long do you dream usually? Uh, how long do you dream usually during? How long do your dreams usually run during sleep? Is it 30 minutes, 60 minutes, or 90 minutes? Um, 30 minutes. I don't think they run very long. Is that your final answer? That's my final answer. Stacey Harris, how long do dreams usually run during sleep? 30 minutes, 60 minutes, or 90 minutes? Uh, 60 minutes. (laughs) Patricia, what's the answer? (laughs) The answer is an amazing 90 minutes. (laughs) Really? That's the usual length of a dream during sleep. Oh. <laughs> All right, Tamara, <laughs> here's your question. What? Okay. What's the record for the longest period without sleep? Is it 18 days, 20 days, or 22 days? Oh, my goodness. Sleepyhead Central I for had, the win. I had a friend who wrote an article about this, too. I'm thinking it's 18 days, but I could be wrong. <laughs> That's your final answer? What's the answer, Patricia? The answer is 18 days. It was during a rocking chair uh, marathon. It was 18 days, 21 hours, and 40 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) I could tell you it wasn't me. (laughs) All right, well, now... It's time for our instant winner game. I posted this on our Facebook, uh, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Twitter feeds. Over 100 people answered the following question correctly. We're going to draw a name. No one answered yet, but the question we'll be asking on instant winner tonight is, how long after we sleep does REM sleep start? 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. First, Stacey Harris, you have to pick a number from 1 to 100 for us to identify our instant winner tonight. Okay, REM is the heavy sleep. What number are you choosing? No, is REM no, the no, heavy sleep? No, no, just choose sleep. a number from 1 to 100. Oh, okay. Uh, 57. 57? Mm-hmm. Maria Alvarado, you could be our winner tonight. When we <laughs> come back after listening to this song by Gladys Knight and the Pips, We'll announce our instant winner. But first, um, I want to tell you that the Empress of Soul has been an incredible influence on all of our lives. We're so happy to be playing her music tonight and recognizing her not only for her music but also for her diabetes advocacy. Let's listen to Landlord, courtesy of Sony Music.
we're back. You're listening to Diabetes Late Night. We're about to announce our instant winner. We're playing our snooze or lose game tonight with the diabetic pastry chef, Stacey Harris. Uh, the question is, how long, uh, how long after we sleep does REM sleep start? First, Tamara Selman, what is uh, REM? Oh, sure. It's rapid eye movement sleep, and it's actually a very active form of sleep that's very different from the other stages of sleep. It's when your brain basically cleans itself up, organizes its files, and consolidates memory. And, it, um, yeah, it's a really interesting phase of sleep to watch if you're in a sleep lab. <laughs> All right, so the pressure is on, Stacey Harris, with that information. How long, do, how long after we fall asleep does REM sleep start? Is it 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes? Your answer tonight. We'll help find. We'll find out one way or the other if Maria Alvarado is our instant winner. What's your answer? Ninety minutes. Yes. Is that your <laughs> final answer, Maria? If you're listening, is that your final answer? Yes, yes or no? Yay! Good job. <laughs> it's a, it is. It's ninety minutes, uh, right, Patricia? That's correct. Ninety minutes. And because you helped us with our instant winner, Maria, you are going to win a new Naturals gift basket filled with diabetic, uh, safe, low-glycemic, tooth-friendly sweeteners, a cabot cheese gift basket filled with an assortment of delicious, low-fat cheeses, Dr. Greenfield's diabetic foot, hand, and body lotions, which are specifically designed for people with diabetes with sensitive and delicate skin. Plus, I'm going to send you the diabetic pastry chef's chocolate flourless cake <laughs> recipe personally. Uh, Stacy Harris, before we go to our final guest, what, tell everyone a little bit about the cookbook coming out uh, this spring that you have. Okay. Well, everyone seems to be more health conscious now, including me. So I thought I would come out with a dessert cookbook featuring all-natural, um, wholesome ingredients suitable for diabetics. And... Um, I think I better state that as a diabetic pastry chef, my goal is not to have the lowest carb products on the market, but to substantially lower the carbs without affecting quality or taste. So it's not like um, I'm going to put out a recipe for a cake that has three net carbs, Um, but they will um, typically be half the carbs of a traditional recipe. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. And check out her book, everybody. We love Stacey Harris, and thank you for participating in our Diabetes Mystery Podcast later in September with some more great recipes. We're going to get to my final guest, but first I'm going to play my favorite song by Gladys Knight. I think her performance is truly breathtaking on this rendition, and I actually prefer her version over Barbara Streisand. This song's lyrics really tug at my heart because I have so many great memories working for DivaBetic over these past 12 years, um, from the monthly podcast to our DivaBetic club appearances and our live makeover events. But I never forget the horrific diabetes health-related complication that was a catalyst for my ma- this amazing chapter in my life. So here's the way we were. Try to remember, courtesy of Sony Music. Every line 
had the chance to do it all again Tell me, would we
signature song, Midnight Train to Georgia. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Enjoy. Going back to find 